Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. The era of atomic energy in California is coming to an end. Pacific Gas and Electric recently announced plans to close the last remaining nuclear power plant in the state. The Diablo Canyon power plant near San Luis Obispo has operated since the early 1970s and will be closed in the next seven or eight years. In a surprise move, PG&E joined with several longtime adversaries, environmentalists and anti-nuclear groups, to craft a plan to replace Diablo Canyon's electricity with renewable solar and wind power. Over the next hour, we will discuss what this milestone means for California's fight against climate disruption, what closing Diablo Canyon will reduce or increase carbon pollution, what does it mean for the state's clean energy push, Joining our live audience, we are pleased to have four guests with varying views on nuclear power in the age of climate disruption. David Baker is a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, where he covers PG&E and other energy companies. John Giesman is former executive director of the California Energy Commission. He's a legal advisor to the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility, an anti-atomic group that supports PG&E's plan to close Diablo Canyon. Diane Grunick is a former commissioner with the California Public Utilities Commission, who is now with the Precourt Institute for Energy at Stanford. And Michael Schellenberger is president of Environmental Progress, a pro-nuclear advocacy group. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thanks, Greg. Welcome, all of you. Before we begin, I want to say that we invited PG&E to be part of this conversation, and we had some back and forth. Uh, we will hear from, directly from a PG&E executive, and of course, during the audience and question portion, we welcome anyone to do that, uh, to join us then. Uh, but David Baker, let's begin with you. Uh, set the context uh, in terms of powering the California economy. How big a deal is this, shutting down Diablo Canyon, which is 20% of PG&E's power? It's, it's quite a big deal, um, not just in terms of PG&E, but in the entire state. The state had, up until a couple of years ago, two nuclear power plants running. And then in 2012, one of them closed down because it had a little bit of radioactive steam that leaked out of a particular part. 
and it turned out that the plant had just spent a whole lot of money on new equipment that was badly designed or just not working properly. And rather than go through the whole process of trying to keep it open and relicensing and all that, its owners decided to close it down. So that left us with just one plant, Diablo Canyon. And to give you a sense of how big the plant is in terms of its importance to the state, last year it was 9%, more than 9%, of all the electricity that was generated within California's borders. So all of that coming out of this one plant. So it was a bit of a bombshell this spring when PG&E announced that rather than going for extending the licenses and keeping it open in another 20 years up until 2045, they were going to agree to close it down when its final license expires in 2025. And they say that they can do this and replace as much power from the plant as they need to replace with energy efficiency, solar, wind, and some energy storage. Still need to find out exactly how they plan to do that, but they have not quite a decade to do it. So it's... It's a huge change if it happens. We'll get into that in the next hour. Uh, earlier today, I spoke with Bill Mannheim, who's legal counsel for energy supply at PG&E. Uh, he talked about why they're closing Diablo Canyon. Let's hear from Bill Mannheim. The underpinning of PG&E's decision not to relicense Diablo Canyon is really in California's existing green energy policies, which are really visionary. But they are seeking to double energy efficiency by 2030, and increase renewable power to 50% by that time. That displaces the need for much of Diablo Canyon's energy. It's a business decision that was driven by the reality that we no longer need by 2030 the output of Diablo Canyon, and that from a policy perspective and from an economic perspective, it was better to replace the portion that is needed for our customers with energy efficiency and renewables. That's Bill Mannheim from PG&E. Michael Schellenberger, he said... They don't need the power. They're going to replace it. What's your response? Well, I mean, last week we were in New York uh, State where they have really been a pioneering. They've just set a new example for how to deal with climate change. New York has um, a huge amount of its power coming from nuclear. It became the first state to recognize nuclear for its climate benefits. So New York is a climate leader. California tries to take credit as a climate leader, but in fact our emissions have declined slower than the national average. If this proposal goes forward, and I don't agree with the way you framed it, you suggested that it is going to close. It is a proposal to close it. Um, Emissions will go up the equivalent of adding 1.3 million cars to the road. Um, It will be replaced by natural gas. There's literally nothing in the proposal that requires that Diablo be replaced by any amount of clean power. In fact, on both of the key elements, it just says, we'll do a bunch of energy efficiency. Now, I think the people in California didn't sign up for that. I think we signed up for clean power, for clean energy that doesn't destroy our beautiful desert landscapes. We didn't sign up for big natural gas leakages, but that's exactly what this proposal would lead to. So I think it's really a testament to how far lost the environmental movement is that so many of these groups have signed off on this deal that would increase methane leaks, increase carbon pollution, make the state incredibly vulnerably dependent on natural gas, including power from out of state. When San Onofre closed, as David Baker was describing, we were 45% natural gas in California. After it closed, we're 61% natural gas. If they succeed with this proposal to close Diablo Canyon, we will become 70% dependent on natural gas. That is a fuel that is just notorious for having huge price spikes. So what we're looking at is a big increase in carbon emissions, big increases in electricity prices, And really, um, I have to say, just the corruption of a basic positive vision that California has had 
as an environmental and climate leader. John Giesman, you're part of this group, uh, of this deal with PG&E. Uh, your response to the, the charge that it will result in more natural gas and it will hurt rather than help California's climate plan. I think that's wrong, and I think that Mike is one of the best propagandists in the business. Last week in New York, he was successful in extorting $7 billion, $7.6 billion to be precise, on behalf of incumbent nuclear plant owners. That's $7.6 billion that could have been going to new technologies, that could have been going to energy alternatives that have a tendency to reduce in price as the volume expands of, of uh, purchases. And as a consequence of that, New York has taken a path that, that is antithetical to what California has tried to do over the course of the last 40 years. How about the, the idea that there's no guarantee in the proposal that it will be renewable power, that it could be natural gas? Does the, does the proposal say what Diablo Canyon electricity has to be replaced it with? It most certainly does, and I don't think Mike has closely read it if he actually feels that way. Uh, there are very clear tranches of new supply that the proposal uh, specifies. Now, I will acknowledge those tranches only address about one-third of the Diablo Canyon out output. But the key story here is, and you heard Bill Mannheim say it, PG&E is very uncertain as to what their load will be in 2025-2026. And I think, I think that's something that all of us ought to ponder pretty carefully. PG&E cannot predict right now what the presence of community choice aggregators will be in its market and what the presence of rooftop solar will be. And they've tried to thwart both. So acknowledging the uncertainty stemming from both of those sources from a business standpoint, I don't think PG&E had much choice. Diane Grunick, let's get you in here. Uh, you've been on the Public Utilities Commission. One of the interesting things here is that, that the state is predicting declining electricity use. There's, there's a shrinking market here, and it seems to be that there's some scramble of what's going on and how to, how to supply that shrinking market. Is that right? Um, let me just say that I find the situation in, heaven forbid, about 40 years involved in energy um, in California about the most interesting one we've ever tackled or been faced with. And part of what's so interesting is that everywhere else that we've dealt with nuclear, it's been a very sudden closing. What David said, you know, you discover that, unfortunately, a whole bunch of parts for a nuclear power plant aren't working. And literally, everybody scrambled, what are we going to do? And that did result in an agreement. 50% of the replacement power would come from natural gas. That, needless to say, had a lot of people upset. But in this situation, we actually have seven years to plan. And that, to me, is what's so extraordinary. The same thing with um, New York. The economics of the market there, the plant operators no longer were making money. And shareholders do not just donate, let's keep a nuclear power plant in operation. So it's a very different situation. Um, and we are, with all of our policies, what we're striving for is a dramatic change in how we're all going to get electricity. Our number one priority in California is energy efficiency. And when I was a commissioner, we, I had the honor of being lead on efficiency. We doubled how much we would all invest in energy efficiency. Last year, our legislature passed a new law that said we're going to double past that. 
And so, yes, our loads are declining. You know, when you turn on the lights in the building, instead of the old incandescent lights that used a lot of energy, not only do we have CFLs, but we have the LEDs that people are buying. And so it does mean that overall we use less energy. And that's bringing up this fascinating situation of a very large power plant like Diablo Canyon that's running just fine, economic. You just may not need that in the future. These very large-scale plants, especially when you have people saying, let's put PV on our homes or let's have them in our communities. And so it's a situation we've never really been faced with before. And I'll just end by saying my prior agency, the California Public Utility Commission, it's going to be the place where, I guess, PG&E, and I don't know, John, if your group and the others, there's going to be a big application for permission to carry out this proposal that will be filed. And there's going to be lots of questions asked. I mean, I have a lot of questions and a lot of public hearings to sort of sort out, is this really going to make sense or not? David Baker, what does this tell us about the, 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 what PG&E and others think about the future of California, what's going to power California's economy, the future of the energy system? We've had some really big plants, uh, billion-dollar plants, and now we have a distributed system, much like computers went from mainframes to, to, to PCs and now phones. We're going to have energy created closer to where it's used. What does this tell us about the future? That's a pretty good way of putting it, actually. Um, it does tell us a couple of things about what, where PG&E and also the people who manage the state's electricity grid think things are going to be 10, 15 years down the road. And it's not necessarily that the amount of electricity we'll use overall will shrink, but it's not going to grow very much. Um, I was visiting two weeks ago this organization based in Folsom, uh, California Independent System Operator. They're the people who actually run the grid. And they are projecting that you look out 10 years from now, and it's basically going to be about the same electricity demand in the state that we have right now, but with a much higher percentage of solar, a bit higher percentage of wind, and a lot of fast-ramping natural gas plants can, that can move up and down as the rest of the system needs it. A big plant like Diablo, which was designed to go up to full power and just stay there day and night, is kind of a tough fit for all of that. And... PG&E clearly is seeing the same thing because you got to remember, PG&E CEO is a big believer in, in nuclear power. He used to lead the nuclear power industry's main lobbying group in the United States. He is a big believer in, in this technology, and this is a big asset for this company. You know, they own this thing at a time when California forced them and the other utilities to sell most of their power plants years ago. They would not want to give this up if they thought there was a good economic case to be made for keeping it open. But keeping it open isn't free. It's, I think, the operating costs at one point, I saw were like $600 million a year or something like that. So if you can't run it full tilt, it's not going to pencil out. Michael Shulver, your response to the, this big nuclear plants don't fit into the future we're going into. I mean, listen, I mean, it's funny, right? Because it's like, I thought we cared about climate change, right? So if you're going to take 9% of our power away why are you going to take it away from a clean energy source? Why not go from 61 to 51% natural gas? Why remove 20% of full one-fifth of our zero-carbon power? The only reason to do it is because you think that there's something really scary or dangerous about nuclear power. But the, the medical journals, the British medical journal Lancet, finds that nuclear is the safest way to generate reliable power. There's been a fear-mongering campaign against this plant, including by John's organization, for almost 40 years 
That's what's underlying it. And, you know, with all due respect, David, you make it sound like the market is sort of operating without, you know, just sort of on its own. The market is constructed by policies. So what PG&E very clearly said is that if you're trying to get, if we have to get to 50% renewables, it's very hard to do that if nuclear is not counted as renewables. They went to the legislature and said, we'd like to be able to count nuclear as renewables, and they were denied. They were lobbied against by all the so-called environmental groups, the anti-nuclear groups, that wanted to keep nuclear out of that definition of renewables. So here we are in a situation where California imports one-third of our power from out of state. You know, we have 61% of our power from natural gas. Why is it that we would be taking offline this amazing source of zero-carbon power 24-7 it produces power? Solar, when the sun goes down and everybody comes home to work, you've got to ramp up your natural gas. Why did we have a leak at Aliso Canyon? We had to stuff all this natural gas into the side of a mountain to deal with the fact that when the sun goes down and power demand goes up, you have to flood huge amounts of gas fired electricity into the system. So if you care about climate change, this proposal is ridiculous. It's disastrous. If you don't care about climate change and you think that nuclear power plants pose some unique danger, which the science does not support at all, then maybe you don't care. But I would suggest that even if you don't, even if you're just concerned about the explosions you get from natural gas pipelines, like the one that killed eight people and blew up, what, 38 homes in San Bruno, they're in the middle of a criminal trial on it, guys break into you know, apartment buildings all the time trying to steal natural gas, somebody lights a cigarette, the building goes up in flames. So why is it that we are putting more of our people at risk by going from nuclear to natural gas? If you take those Lancet numbers that I just cited, or you cite the numbers that James Hansen, the climate scientist, finds, closing down Diablo, replacing it with natural gas will increase premature deaths in this state from 800 to 2,100 deaths. So this is a proposal that will increase our reliance on, a, on one of our most dangerous ways of making power. It will increase methane leakage, which put the equivalent of a half a million cars on the road from Aliso Canyon. There is no excuse to do this other than an underlying paranoia about our largest source of zero carbon power. We're talking about climate change and nuclear power at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are David Baker from the San Francisco Chronicle. You just heard Michael Schellenberger from Environmental Progress. We also have Diane Grunick from Stanford and John Giesman, former director of the California Energy Commission. Uh, Michael Schellenberger just mentioned James Hansen, uh, noted uh, former NASA chief climate scientist, one of the probably world's preeminent climate scientists. He has some views about nuclear power. Let's hear what he had to say uh, last year when he was recording these comments for the film Pandora's Promise. The only hope that we have of phasing down emissions and getting to the middle of the century with a much lower level of fossil fuel emissions, which is what we will have to do if we want young people to have a future, then we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to find alternatives. And at this time, uh, nuclear seems to be the best candidate. That's the uh, climate scientist, James Hansen. So, John Giesman, there's an increasing number of people coming over who used to be opposed to nuclear saying climate is such a big moral responsibility. The energy needs are so vast. Nuclear has to be part of the solution. What do you say to that? I get that. Uh, but I would distinguish between new nuclear plants, new nuclear technologies, and existing incumbent aging plants heading into the end of life, their hospice period. And I think that Mike, if, if in fact he were truly concerned about climate change and truly familiar with California, would recognize that 50 percent 
of our greenhouse gas emissions in California are attributable to the development and refining and use of petroleum and focus attention there. And one of the potential solutions there is electrification of our transportation system. That clearly wasn't enough from PG&E's standpoint to justify keeping Diablo open. And let me tell you why. If you take the revenue requirement that in our Public Utilities Commission regulation uh, establishes how much money Diablo takes to run every year, it works out to about 5.6 cents per kilowatt hour. Check out what the wholesale price of power in California is right now. It's 3.0. Tony Early, Geisha Williams, both very sophisticated business executives. And they can look forward and say, you know, I don't know that it makes sense to try and put any more money in this leaky bucket any longer. It's not accurate, by the way. Those numbers are wrong. Can I, can I, would it cost to run, and David reported on this very well, would it, would it cost to run Diablo Canyon for PG&E is 4 to 5 cents a kilowatt hour. What you and I pay is 18 cents a kilowatt hour. What PG&E says that they pay to, to, for imports from out of state is something closer to 10 to 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So those are the facts of it. The, the economics of, a, of an existing nuclear plant, which, by the way, is, um, could run... 80 years, that nuclear plant, that's what the NRC would be considering Diablo to run for. It's run 30 years, so I guess you can call a 30-year-old at the end of his life, but I think that's a little unfair to the 30-year-old. Um, nuclear power, in, on average, in the United States is 35 years old. Those plants can go to 80 years. Some people think they go to 100. You're just replacing parts. So you've got to ask, like, what, and, and, and frankly, the desire, I mean, I Where share the desire, parts? let's get rid of petroleum, let's move from, to Mike? electric cars, let's move to hydrogen um, fuel cell cars. Why would we, we be shutting down a major source of zero carbon power that can produce the power we need for zero emissions vehicles or produce the, the hydrogen we need for those vehicles? It's just, it, it, you know, ask John what he really thinks of nuclear power. He'll tell you he thinks it's a unique threat. David, unique Baker, David Baker, what does this say about the economics of industry, of nuclear industry? And is this going to uh, spread to other states? We've seen uh, a lot of the nuclear plants in the United States have had their licenses extended. A few has closed. Is this a harbinger of something that, that could happen nationwide? Well, it, it? The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the one that the government agency that rules on the licenses, they, they extend for 20 years at a time, and they have yet to deny an extension request for any nuclear plant that has finished the process of, of requesting one. That said, we have seen a bunch of plants basically killed by the same thing that's killing coal plants, namely cheap natural gas. It is hard for them to compete in the long run against that. And if we're talking about electricity prices, you know, Tony Early will tell you that the while they paid pretty heavily for large-scale solar 10 years ago in, in California, now they're seeing prices in the $0.05 cent per kilowatt-hour range from new utility-sized solar projects. And that's actually... That's been confirmed by a pretty good study out of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab last year. So the economics here are a bit different from what they are elsewhere, but they're still pretty challenging for nuclear overall around the country, at least this kind of nuclear plant. We're going to go to our lightning round at Climate One. We're talking about nuclear energy and climate change. Uh, these are a series of uh, yes or no questions for our guests, starting with John Giesman. Uh Yes or no, the nuclear energy industry in America is dying a slow death. Yes. 
Uh, Diane Grunick. More people, yes or no? More oh, I don't get the same question. No, you get the one, yeah. <laughs> that would be cute. Uh, uh, Diane Grunick, more people have died working in coal mines than working in nuclear power plants. Yes. Is Mike, there a right or wrong to these? Um, Michael, That's accurate. Michael Schellenberger, coal-fired electricity damages public health far more than nuclear power. Oh, it's easy. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> David Baker, the nuclear power industry has a poor record of controlling costs. Yes. Michael Schellenberger, nuclear energy provides a shrinking percentage of global energy supply. Unfortunately, that is true. Diane Grunick, the plan to close Diablo Canyon is not a done deal and could come unhinged. Yes. Uh, also, for, <laughs> also for Diane Grunick, oh, uh, you get a two for here. Nuclear energy is renewable energy. Depends. Defined by policymakers in this world. In this case, in California, no. Okay. Uh, John Geisman, uh, the only U.S. states building new nuclear power plants today are ones where the utility companies have regulators on a leash, which means they can pass huge costs onto customers. They also have your, their hands in your pocket for advanced construction funding. That was um, a yes. That's, there's, some, there's some plants under construction in Georgia where the ratepayers are already playing for the plants and they're, they're not operating yet. Uh, Diane Grunick, nuclear power plants will continue to be built in Asia and the Middle East. Yes. John Giesman, the United States should continue research into new forms of nuclear power. Yes. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, nuclear waste is the best kind of waste. Yes. <laughs> in terms of electricity production. That means you're willing to carry it out to the curb in your slippers and robe on Sunday, Sunday morning. Abs- every morning I do that, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever uh, I have the chance. David Baker, some liberals oppose nuclear power blindly and ideologically, unencumbered by facts. You gave that to me the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> we recycle questions occasionally. I can, I can agree on the first part, not on the second. First clause, yes. Second clause, no. John Giesman, that is similar to conservatives who deny climate science blindly and ideologically, unencumbered by facts. Yes. Michael Schellenberger, movies such as The China Syndrome, starring Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda, and Silkwood, starring Sharon Meryl Streep, did more to shape public perception about nuclear power than most environmental groups. Yeah, I don't think so. David Baker, last question. Small modular reactors... uh, Small modular nuclear reactors are like hydrogen. They are the fuel of the future, and they always will be. Sure seems that way. (laughs) All right, that ends our lightning round. How do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. Uh, let's talk about the waste. Michael Schellenberger, nuclear waste. This country ha- doesn't have a good solution. Yucca Mountain was a political decision to put it in a place where, they, where there's already a nuclear industry. How are we going to solve the waste problem? I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, look, the waste... People, First of all, people don't know what it is. So what gets called waste is the spent fuel, at least the high-level stuff that everyone worries about. It's the, it's the spent fuel. You, most of the energy is still in it because our reactors are not yet where they will be in 100 years or whatever when they can burn all of the energy up. Um, the, the, the waste just sits there. It's in solid form. You ask people what they worry about. They kind of go, oh, my gosh, I'm worried it'll be transported and then it'll fall off the truck and then green liquid will spill into the river. So, first of all, it's not green and it's not liquid. It's solid. It's sitting right there on site, and it's fine. If you take all of the waste that nuclear power in the United States has produced since we began producing power from nuclear 
Um, it would all fit on a football field about 50 or 60 feet high. So there's hardly any of it. As an environmentalist, like, I worry about so many other kinds of waste, like the, all the plastic um, islands of waste in the ocean or you know, the chemical waste or, or the carbon dioxide waste, the, what we call pollution that we put up into the air. No form of making power better internalizes its waste than nuclear. So there's tiny amounts of it. It's easy to handle and manage. It's just become a kind of bogeyman for people. Um, I did want to say one other thing, too, because David said cheap gas. I don't think that's accurate. Solar and wind have boomed during a period of cheap gas in the United States. So if it were just cheap gas, we wouldn't have seen solar and wind booming. Nuclear has been discriminated against in federal subsidies. The U.S. government finds that solar gets 140 times more subsidies than nuclear. Wind gets 17 times more in subsidies than nuclear. Nuclear is excluded from every state renewable portfolio standard. So I don't think it's accurate to say it's just cheap gas. It's a policy of discrimination, and those policies are based on a, on a, a set of fear-mongering by institutions that really started in this state and have spread over the last 40 years. Diane Grunick, back on waste. Is the waste no big problem? It's fine where it is? Absolutely not. It's a very, very significant concern. And it's actually not just the United States. And this is the thing to really think about. Um, the question that you would ask me, are, is nuclear going to be continued to be built basically outside of the United States? Yes, this is where Asia, this is where India, this is where some of the other areas of the world that politically are very worrisome are getting their power from. And we have not solved the waste problem in 40 years. And it is, Michael was right. It's a political problem. If we got past that, then we could start to focus on can we have the science work? We'd like to see that that happen. But for waste, it's really what's happening outside of the United States where you don't have anywhere near the protections or concerns. And this is where collectively we've all got to figure out what we're going to do about this. David Baker, that raises the, the question of terrorism. There was one of the suspects in the Paris terror attacks who was thought to be kind of casing a nuclear facility in Europe. Uh, let's talk about terrorism. That's something of real concern, whether it's here in the United States or, or abroad. It would be pretty tough for terrorists to attack Diablo. Diablo is very heavily armed. It is, you do not go there by accident. <laughs> you, I mean, it's, it's on a private road. You have to travel, I think, something like four or five miles on the private railroad before you can even see the plant. But once you get to the plant, you don't get onto the real grounds or get anywhere near the machinery until you've gone through multiple layers of security. And there are a lot of guys with guns who look extremely serious about using them who are constantly <laughs> patrolling the ground. To get into the reactor machinery itself, I don't know how you would ever do that. To get to the, the spent fuel that's stored outside of the main buildings... Again, I'm not sure how you'd do that. Uh, there have been, there's been some concern about people trying to crash planes into it, uh, but you would probably need a jetliner to actually physically impact it. A small plane would smash up to bits against one of those casks. And who would think that terrorists could get a jetliner? It's, it's a radical idea. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, now PG&E will have an answer for that, too. They, they think that essentially the, it's protected by the hillsides that are right nearby, that it, the hillsides would catch the plane before they would actually reach the cast. I mean, it just gets to a level know. of ridiculousness. Like, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, it's like people, this, this idea gets promoted. I used to believe it, by the way, when I was an anti-nuclear activist, that if there was like a meltdown or accident, that it's like a bomb going off. I mean, when you look at 
at like the the U.S. government's scenarios for what happens if someone does a dirty bomb. That's what it would effectively be. Basically, all the deaths are from panic. People trampling each other, driving fast, whatever. It can be hospital radioactive waste that creates a dirty bomb like that. And I think it's a powerful metaphor for the whole issue here, which is that it's our fear that kills. And I think the fear-mongering, we have got to hold it to account. We don't allow people to fear-monger around vaccines. We don't allow people to fear-monger in ways that put us at risk. The fear-mongering around nuclear is putting us at risk. If we go and shut down this plant, more people will die from air pollution and accidents than if you keep it running. And that has to be held accountable here. You can't get away with saying nonsense about this technology and not be responsible for the accidents and the damages that you're causing. Michael Schellenberg is a pro-nuclear advocate. We're talking about the closing of Diablo Canyon here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My other guests are David Baker from the San Francisco Chronicle, Diane Grunick from Stanford, and John Giesman from an anti-nuclear group. Uh, Fukushima was mentioned. Diane Grunick, uh, has the United States and California applied the lessons of Fukushima? Diablo Canyon is up high. It can't, uh, uh, tsunami can't get there. But more generally... Uh, has, have we learned the lessons of Fukushima? Um, I want to echo what David said, because I have visited Diablo Canyon, and it is very, very well protected, I think. Um, there is some issues about it was built before we understood climate change, and as um, ocean levels rise... Um, what you're going to have to have even more protection against the ocean right there. But I think in general, um, it, there's a great um, effort made to be protecting the plant. What I will say is more of what John had mentioned, which is when you go inside um, the facility, um, you are stepping back in time. Again, I want to say I think that it is... Um, Everybody, my impression was, was trying absolutely their professional best to run a top-notch facility. But it was built, John, 50 years ago? Designed 50 years ago. And they still have, you know, we're not talking digital. You know, some of it is still mechanical. And what's happened is over those 50 years, as different devices have worn out, they've been replaced. And so it's not a brand new, shining, you know, state-of-the-art facility. It is one that has had to have, you know, various parts of it replaced and replaced and replaced. And I got the impression when I toured it, and this was when I was a commissioner, that, again, the commitment there was phenomenal. But they are dealing with an older facility. And that's, I think, more of sort of the concern of how are we going to keep our top-notch performance records um, at the state we all want them to be. Another concern is cost. David Baker, how much is this going to cost, and who's going to pay? We're going to pay. Um, the estimated cost right now is $3.8 billion to de- decommission the plant that may go higher. They're, they've increased the estimate a couple of times over the last few years. We have already, all of us in this room, been paying into that fund, uh, though probably most people don't realize it. As soon as a nuclear plant starts up, the people who are its end customers, the utility rate payers, start paying bit by bit into a decommissioning fund. And to date, we've put $2.6 billion, Well, by the end of last year, we'd put $2.6 billion into that. Now, there is a bit of a shortfall between now and 2025. PG&E wants to raise rates by roughly, or bills, I think, uh, roughly $0.50 cents per month over the next few years to, to sort of close the gap of what they think it's going to cost. 
But the total right now, yeah, it's 3.8. We did a poll on Twitter that asked people whether they think uh, closing Diablo Canyon, what its cost will be monetarily and carbon. Uh, we had about 100 responses. Uh, 43% said that closing Diablo Canyon will save money and reduce carbon. 37% said it would have a neutral effect. And 20% said it would cost money and increase carbon. So most people think that it will uh, be a good economic move and a good uh, move for the climate. Uh, Michael Schellenberg, are people misguided? Totally. I mean, just think about it. Like, here you are taking offline 20% of our clean power. And then they kind of go, well, no, we're going to make it up. Well, first of all, the proposal doesn't make it up at all. Just go read it. I mean, it just says we'll do 2,000 gigawatt hours from efficiency and then 2,000 gigawatt hours from efficiency or maybe renewables. Well, efficiency is not a power source. That doesn't replace um, clean power. You know, I agree with David said with projections, our electricity will be flat. So that doesn't mean that means electricity is not projected to go down. Every major analyst who looks at this, whether it's the industry guys at PIRA or KQED did a great story on this. David's going to nobody. I mean, there's just nobody independent who thinks that you can take offline 20 percent of our clean power and have it just instantly replaced in seven years by solar. That took us, what, 20 years to get that much solar as we are at today. And meanwhile, like, what do you do at night? I mean, we still have got to provide power for hospitals and schools at night, for homes at night. So I, it, it's really foolish. I mean, look at San Onofre, right? When, when San Onofre shut down, the, amount, the emissions went up the equivalent of over 2 million cars on the road. We spent, we're, I mean, it's, now it's in, it's in a legal case, but the proposal was to spend $6.6 billion taking down a nuclear plant that could have run for 30 to 50 years more instead of just spending $800 million on replacing the steam generators. I mean, people talk about these plants in this kind of odd way. I don't really, I mean, just, just respectfully, like, we don't talk about dams this way. We don't go, well, that dam is getting really old, you know? We, I mean, it's really, you know, you replace parts. You replace turbines. I mean, things get replaced. These are long-lasting. Frankly, these are things that should be considered public goods. If you care about climate, you care about pollution, why would we be spending billions of dollars to put ourselves in greater jeopardy in terms of more pollution, more accidents, higher electricity prices. I mean, does anybody even remember why we had an electricity crisis in 2001? We, our governor had to leave office and get replaced by a Hollywood movie star because we were too dependent on natural gas being imported from out of state. Now we're intending to go from 61% to 71% gas. It's a kind of madness. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, when, you know, when people decide to stop vaccinating their kids, we don't kind of go make it state policy that everybody should not vaccinate your kids. You say, no, you know what? If you want your kids to go to public school, they got to get vaccinated. This is a public good. This is clearly where the science says we need to be going. I mean, we've done now eight letters to President Obama, every major anti-nuclear group, Governor Brown, with James Hansen, Stuart Brand, just a who's who of the most prestigious climate and conservation scientists in the world, just pleading to just keep these nuclear plants open. And instead, these very powerful lobbies, I mean, we're talking about groups like the Sierra Club and NRDC that have budgets over $100 million a year. They take money from fossil fuel and other energy companies that have a direct interest in replacing Diablo Canyon. I've documented it all on our website, Environmental Progress. Lots of accusations get made. Our, our group, by the way, is completely independent of any energy interests. But the groups trying to shut down Diablo Canyon have serious conflicts of interest, taking money from solar, natural gas, and having investments in those companies that will stand to benefit from replacing Diablo Canyon. Uh, so we kind of expect environmentalists to be involved in clean energy. You claim your group uh, is independent. Absolutely. So uh, Rachel Pritzker, primary funder of the Breakthrough Institute and, yep. and, and Pandora's Promise, 
uh, is on the advisory committee of the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, which uh, with members yep. of, from Bechtel, Babcock and Wilcox, Exelon, right. TerraPower. That's showed that she's very closely aligned uh, with nuclear energy interests. She's, no, that's not what that shows. It shows that she's on a board. I mean, I'm on the MIT Nuclear, the Future of Nuclear Advisory Board. There's going to be nuclear companies on that advisory board. That's not a conflict of interest. I mean, look, the conflict of interest is when you have money coming into your organization or you're invested in energy companies that stand to benefit. That's just a, frankly, that is just guilt by association, what you just did right there. That's not a conflict of interest. We're talking about clean energy and Diablo at Climate Thank One. I want to, uh, Tony Early, the, the president and uh, chairman and CEO of, of Pacific Gas and Electric, was here recently, and he talked about a couple of things. He talked about his predecessor and also the CPUC. So let's hear from Tony Early during the lightning round. You are still working to repair the damage to the company's reputation caused by Peter Darby's tenure as CEO. Uh, yes. <laughs> the California Public Utilities Commission under former President Mike Peavy got a little too cozy with utilities it regulated. Boy, that's a... <laughs> Can I take the fifth on that one? <laughs> um, I mean, there were issues on, on both sides that really needed to be fixed. Uh, Diane Grunick, you were formerly <laughs> on the, the PUC, and uh, the former chairman, Mike Peavy, uh, the Orange County Register reports that Kamala Harris, the state attorney general, is pursuing criminal charges against him for cozy relations with another utility, Edison International, which he used to head. Uh, and there's been, so you, as a former commissioner, does it, you know, how good a job has the PUC been doing, and can we really trust them to, to police this deal? Um, <laughs> you didn't ask the question I was worried about, so thank you. No. What um, question was that? We'll get to that. Yeah, what question was yeah. that? Uh, I think that there can be trust in the PUC's review of Diablo Canyon. Again, just to remind folks, this is a proposal that's been developed to you know, shut down Diablo Canyon, to recover costs, and then to have a plan going forward which, contrary to my uh, panelists up here, does not include natural gas power plants. I have read it, and that much is what they've said, is that it will be carbon-free resources. All of those issues are going to be reviewed in a public forum. Um, I really encourage people who care about this issue to either participate before the PUC. If you are a consumer, there are consumer watch dog groups. There's going to be Michael, I'm sure. But the PUC, in my experience, does best when there's really the public eye keeping track of what's going on. And this is, you know, one of the most important decisions that California has faced. David, I'm sure you're going to do a great job of reporting on it. Um, I will report it. But it requires the public to say you care about this, and we want to understand what decisions are made, what facts are behind those decisions that you're making. And when the commission and the commissioners understand that the public is keeping an eye on them, that's when I think they function the best. So, David Baker, what do you think? Can we... Californians have confidence that the PUC is going to do a good job uh, overseeing this deal. We had another commissioner, Mike Florio, who was a consumer rate advocate who played, ended up playing footsie for the, with the industry. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's a, you know, it's a uh, damaged institution in some ways. It is, but it, it is a public process. You know, people can go on and read what, exactly what you were talking about. You can read these proposals. Um, you can 
go to these meetings, you can see exactly what's being said about it. And yeah, it's like a lot of government bodies, it functions best when people are staring at it and talking to it. I think the thing that's interesting here, though, is it's not just this issue with Diablo. is not just a question of trust in the PUC. I think it's fundamentally a question of trust in PG&E itself. Now, for decades, the people who wanted that plant closed were the ones who distrusted PG&E. Um, you know, they didn't believe the seismic studies around there. They didn't believe the claims that the technology is as safe as PG&E thinks it is. Here, Michael and the people who agree with him don't believe PG&E's statement that they can replace this without increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you know, the company does a lot of modeling. It's part of their business. And they're staking a big asset on the idea that they can do this without increasing those emissions. Some people either don't believe that they're being honest about that or don't believe that they're accurate. But if you're talking about a damaged institution, I think that's sort of at the, the crux of this. People are so used to distrusting PG&E. The other part of this was uh, the sort of the, the Peter Darby area when he was uh, running uh, PG&E and now Tony Early. Uh, under the Peter Darby era, PG&E tried to stop renewable energy, spent $50 million trying to change the state constitution, alienate a lot of their supporters. Is it different now? I sense a difference. Is it different now that they seem to be more on board, recognizing community power is happening, and really going more forcefully toward renewables? I would say in a lot of ways, yes. And this announcement was kind of astonishing to me in some ways because of that. Now, you've mentioned the community choice programs, uh, things like Marin Clean Energy and Clean Power SF. These are programs where cities or counties get together and buy electricity on behalf of their citizens. PG&E really tried to strangle that one in the grave and tried to prevent the Marin agency from even forming, at one point even threatening to blockade power deliveries to it. They lost that fight, and now when PG&E was announcing that they were going to close down Diablo, one of the main reasons they were talking about was that they expected that model to spread really far across California, as it has. It may not necessarily be the future that they would have wanted for themselves 10 years ago, but I think they realized this is the policy of the state. This is where things are going, and I'd say they're far more on board with it now than they were 10 years back. Are they more on board than the oil companies, which yes. are constantly litigating against the state? Yes. Greg, Greg, may I just say something? that I think that um, we should not fall into taking a position one way or another on this because we either trust or don't trust PG&E. I mean, I don't know what's really in their minds. They, Yes, they care about their customers who are increasingly wanting to have solar and community choice and hopefully energy efficiency, um, but they also have shareholders, and they're looking at this type of an issue very, very, um, uh, you know, coldly in a sense. Um, but as a state, you know, hopefully we are all committed to climate change and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, for me, that's the overriding factor. And so what we have here is Michael and his group in very, you know, honest situations saying, hey, I just don't trust PG&E. They can talk all they want about energy efficiency and renewables, but boy, I think the first chance they get, they're going to build natural gas plants, and that's going to shoot our emissions up high. You probably have John, I'm assuming, um, saying, wait a minute, that we, they can, you know, that's where technology is going. We're going to get a lot of renewables. We've had great drops in prices, but 
Um, none of us should have our future just based upon a hope that all this is going to work out. You know, we need to, and I come back to um, the Public Utilities Commission, probably at some point the legislature is going to weigh in, and other folks, you know, demand that there is an assurance of understanding this deal and all the costs and all the risks, and then if it does proceed, transparency and understanding step by step what is going to be happening as far as replacement power, and I hope demanding that it's carbon emission-free, because that's what our state needs. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. The Natural Resources Defense Council, along with other environmental groups, has come out in support of closing Diablo Canyon. Yet some of its funds are invested in renewable energy companies that could profit from the plan. Is that a conflict of interest, as our guest Michael Schellenberger contends? Greg Dalton spoke later with Ralph Cavanaugh, co-director of the NRDC's energy program, and asked him to respond. NRDC accepts no money from energy companies, any energy companies. Some of NRDC's financial reserves are invested with mutual funds that make decisions independently of us. None of those decisions had any bearing whatever on our participation in these negotiations. NRDC's clean energy leadership dates back 40 years, and it is ridiculous to suggest that there is something corrupt about replacing an aging nuclear power plant with less costly energy efficiency and renewable energy. During their conversation, Dalton also asked Kavanaugh about the recent jury verdict against PG&E regarding the 2010 fatal explosion in San Bruno. Uh PGD was recently convicted of six felony federal felony charges for obstructing justice. So what can you say to Californians who say, well, can we trust PG&E to follow through on this deal? They were just convicted of federal crimes. PG&E's reputation can only be helped by its energy efficiency and renewable energy leadership in the joint proposal. What it comes down to now is is following through. NRDC is committed to doing that. I think that's the best response PG&E can make, and we'll certainly look forward to helping. That's Ralph Kavanaugh of the Natural Resources Defense Council. He spoke recently with Greg Dalton about PG&E's proposal to close Diablo Canyon. Now back to our live program from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, Let's consider that we take the joint proposal at face value. Uh, And the proposal says we will be at 55% uh, CO2 free emissions by 2031 and perhaps through 2041. Today, we're at 56% CO2 free emissions. Why should I be happy about being stagnant for up to the quarter century? Thank you. You shouldn't be happy. Uh, David Baker? Um, It's two different measures of greenhouse gas free emissions. When PG&E is talking about that, they're talking about sources of power that fall underneath the state's renewable portfolio standard, which excludes nuclear and excludes big hydro. If you included those two in there, we would, yes, we'd be way over we, we'd be way over the figure that the state touts right now. Right now, PG&E says that they're at about 30% for the stuff that the state counts, and they're trying to get to 55 for 2031. And you need to add about 8% for large hydro to each of those numbers. Yeah, but just to be clear, what I think the, the questioner was pointing out is that PG&E is saying that they're going to reduce the amount of zero-carbon power that they provide under this deal. No, you didn't do the arithmetic, Mike. 55 plus 8 equals 63. 
Hold on, hold on. We, we can't hear you. So, uh, John Giesman, quickly. 55, which is the 2030 target of RPS eligible power, plus eight, which is the current amount of large hydro in California, is 63. Now, if I focus on PG&E, that large hydro is about double that. So it would be 55 plus 16. You, de- you need to do the arithmetic. Mike, oh, I, you, know, you need to today. actually read the proposal. It doesn't promise to replace any of Diablo Canyon with clean power. None of it. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, in the U.S., there are some, from my understanding, there are some nuclear power plants that are still running despite the fact that the safety regulations are outdated. So how can we ensure that if there are nuclear power plants, that our governments and that our safety regulations stay up to date? That is what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission does. It does update them. I mean, you're talking about what is considered one of the best regulatory agencies in the world. I mean, it is staffed by independent regulators. They're overseen by an inspector general. This is, it is, it is not, um, it is, does not report to the president, does not report to Congress. It's bipartisan. I mean, this is the thing about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It is the gold standard of regulation around the world. So very few what you're people, arguing is it's just not the case. Very few people unaffiliated with the nuclear industry feel positively toward the NRC. Virtually everyone else that has had any dealings whatsoever with the NRC consider them, as Barack Obama said in 2008, a captive agency. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Um, this is something that really comes up in Germany. Um, I, don't, I think tying this to California, is the priority in California's policies more renewables or greenhouse gas abatement? That's a great question. It's both. We continue to believe that the um, path forward for reducing our carbon emissions is to really increase how much renewables we have as well as energy efficiency. We still have on the books a law that does not allow us to build new nuclear power plants until we have a um, approved method for disposing of the highly radioactive waste. So if we were to bring on any more nuclear power plant, we would actually have to cha- have a change in the law. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Bill Mannheim from PG&E. And I, I understand <laughs> there's a lot of skepticism about how are we going to do this. And I just wanted to say that we'll be filing our application with the Public Utilities Commission. We have 10 scintillating chapters of analysis that will explain <laughs> our plan and how we're going to do it. And Diane, you'll be happy to hear it will be 100% public, not a single confidential document <laughs> within the filing. Um, we are committed to a public process. We've had public, four public workshops and, and, and another for participants in the PUC process. And we've been engaging with people who've raised concerns. So we, you know, we fully encourage everyone to participate in this process. We're going to do our best to explain how it's going to happen. But in a nutshell, California's policies today are already displacing Diablo Canyon. And by 2030, half the need for energy will be displaced. So the focus in the joint proposal is how are we going to replace that second half? And we make very real commitments in the joint proposal and as you'll see in our filing. First, to energy efficiency in unparalleled magnitude before the plant even closes. Then another tranche of renewables or energy efficiency. And then a voluntary 55%. We project, as you'll see in our filing, that by 2030, 
the resource base for our customers will be 80 to 95% GHG-free. So it's not just about holding steady. We think under this plan, we'll be reducing GHG emissions. So a couple Thanks of points about the Thanks proposal. The first is just that these are all, it's public relations proposal. It says we're going to try. There's no commitment to it. The second is that the proposal actually says we're going to have this democratic process, but all the parties to our proposal must defend the proposal as written. It literally says it like a few sentences later. It goes, we're all committed to defending this proposal exactly as it's written. So the public participation part, I'm sorry, it's hard to see that it's very sincere when all the parties to it have agreed that they're not going to budge from any element of what's in it. But, Michael, I really must say this, that... um Public participation means the public. It does not mean just the people who signed this agreement. Right. So the process will be everybody, yourself, anybody else who opposes this, people who have questions to come in. And I reiterate again, it's going to work if the public shows up and says, I have these objections or I have these concerns. But but the point is that the people that are defending the proposal have already agreed that they won't make any changes to it. We got that. Okay. Last question. Thank you. Um, it's worth noting that nuclear power can actually load follow while wind and solar can't. Uh, so if it's a purely economic argument requiring to Diablo Canyon to, to stay online at 100 percent, that's the only way that they can make it economically viable. Um, what if this could be accomplished with diversions of the energy to non-grid applications? Uh, would that provide reasoning for not closing Diablo, such as production of hydrogen uh, or electrical cars? Or desalination, right? Of course. I mean, if you really cared about climate, you would not be shutting down one-fifth of your clean power. If there's too much solar coming onto the grid, which is what's happening this year, we had to, the, the grid operators had to stop all the solar coming in from the, the farms when we didn't need it. You would be setting up ourselves to go and get hydrogen cars, electric cars. That's not what this proposal does. It takes away a full fifth of our zero-carbon baseload. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking about nuclear power in Diablo Canyon. A lot of people are asking whether or not they're going to be able to replace all of its power with renewables, but I think that's missing the point. Even if they could do that, that's not acceptable. You know, how is it acceptable to spend all that time, money, and effort, like, like 15 years or so and all this money, just to replace one non-fossil source with another? You know, in, in other words, just to tread water on climate change. These are not the actions of a society or a state that really cares about global warming. Apparently, it's very clear that the agenda is renewables, period, and maximizing those. Um, okay, let's, we have to wrap up. We're actually let me say something John, as, John as an energy planner there, and I've done that twice in my life, once as an executive director of the Energy Commission in the 70s, and later as a member of the Energy Commission when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. And it's real important from the state standpoint to recognize how hard it is to build infrastructure. And a key takeaway from confronting that toughness is Find where the path of least resistance lies. Figure out what the public wants and give them some of that. Now, all these community choice aggregation organizations forming, not a single one has organized around the principle of we want more nuclear power in our supply system. Mike, why don't you organize? I would love to. to That's what we're doing. I mean, look, you guys have spent 40 years fear-mongering on completely baseless grounds. So I think it's understandable that people think nuclear power is something that it's not. This is the first time there's been a civil society movement for this technology. 
It's early days. Our organization is seven months old. So, you know, come in, let's talk in 40 years and let's see how we do. I think that on, in the long term, the society bends towards truth and science and away from hysterical fear mongering. We are out of time. I've already been talking about Diablo Canyon, the future of nuclear power and climate change in California with David Baker, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, Michael Schellenberger, the pro nuclear advocate, Diane Grunick, an energy expert at Stanford, and John Giesman, an anti nuclear activist. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience in here in the room at the Commonwealth Club on air and online. Thank you all for joining us for this conversation. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.